Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. We've got Game 6 of the 1975 series between the Reds and the Red Sox. We're back at Fenway. Uh, this is one of the most iconic, classic World Series games up there with the greatest playoff baseball games in history. It's got perhaps the most icon, one of the most iconic images up there with Willie Mays' grab in center field and Joe Carter jumping around, jumping for joy around the bases. This game is absolutely incredible. And to lead up to that moment, you probably know what it is, but the, this game in itself is absolutely incredible. It's got so many moments, so much tension, so many emotional swings. I mean, because, I mean, of course, you know, there's other great earlier World Series games, but this is elimination baseball. We're back at Fenway. The Reds have a 3-2 series lead. You know, sort of, they had a drubbing in Game 5, and that, I feel, sort of the most lopsided game that we've had uh, so far, not in terms of score, but in terms of real dominance uh, there from uh, from the Reds over the Red Sox. But an interesting thing here, so if we're looking at, you know, the, the sort of the days of the week, you know, the, the last day that we played, I believe, was a Thursday. It was a Thursday. Um, it would have been, game five was, uh, that's right, Thursday, October 16th, and they're supposed to be playing on a Saturday at Fenway. However, there was a huge torrential rainstorm. It knocked out Saturday. It knocked out Sunday. And it even knocked out Monday. Field still being unplayable. I believe, I believe the rain had perhaps stopped. But it was basically three days of torrential downpour. Now, one team was probably not too, not too mad about that. And that's going to be the Red Sox because, well, hey, elimination game with it being pushed back three days instead of going with Bill Lee in game six, they're going to be able to go with Louis Tiant on practically full rest. Uh, and then be able to have Bill Lee in reserve. Um, it put the the Reds in a little bit of a, you know, in terms of advantages, their only real frontline starter was Don Gullett. Uh, and curiously enough, they were going to go with Jack Billingham uh, for game six, but they opted to go with Gary Nolan. We'll get into what happens and some of the decisions and some of the gripes uh, that I think were uh, held by both teams. Um, but it's very interesting. I mean, of course, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, obviously rain would have caused a delay in Cincinnati, but it would have been a lot easier to make the field playable and you would have a window of opportunity. Whereas at Fenway, nope, field was soggy and it was still a little bit, and I think the conditions were still a little bit wet, but it ended up actually being a pretty, pretty nice evening, actually much better weather than our first two games at Fenway, which were cold and damp. Uh, this is a little bit, I think at the, at the start of the game they mentioned, I think it was around like 62 degrees. Obviously, as the night goes on, the temperature drops down, gets a little cooler. Uh, but it was going to be a great night, a great night for baseball. Uh, and there's some real heroes. Uh, you, you, might expect me, you might be expecting me to kind of do a deep dive into Carlton Fisk. Uh, and, and he certainly deserves, you know, deservedly so. However, 
the character and I, I emphasize character like like we've had characters in this series the the person I'm going to focus on uh, at, after after our little break here is going to be Bernie Carbo because I believe while Fisk has the most iconic moment in perhaps World Series history, it wouldn't have been possible without Bernie Carbo's heroics. And uh, I'll get into the incredible, perhaps tragic backstory of Bernie Carbo after a word from our sponsor. Hey, kids. How do you like to grab some pizza while we're out driving? Yay! Pizza! We love pizza! What kind? Yeah, what, what kind? kind? I don't know. Hey, say, what about this place? Uh, Shaky's Pizza. We haven't tried that. Okay. okay. Cool. Hey, folks. Welcome to Shaky's, where we're all about having fun. Oh, so that's swell. And what about your pizza? Well, we'll get to that. But first, we've got fun and games. Like pinball, where you knock some pins down with a ball on a string. Okay, bud. Um, we've got a jukebox playing yesterday's hits. And we've got a player piano that plays old-timey tunes that you may not remember at all. All by itself. Um, and pizza? Well, get to that. We have animatronic characters that will delight and sometimes frighten you. What kind of pizza you got? Oh, all kinds. I'm getting to that. We have waiters and waitresses all dressed up in funny old-timey themed costumes with stripes and suspenders. Old-timey what? And the very latest video games. Like Pong? Uh, no. Uh, but like Solitaire. All here at Shakey's Pizza. Now about that pizza. I'm sorry, but that's all the time we have left. Shakey's. Where fun and games and old-timey things happen. Oh, and, and you can get pizza, too. It's interesting to be covering a guy and, and f putting the focus on someone who's not even starting in this game, has been relegated to pinch-hitting duties, despite really having his, uh, his best year since his rookie year a year where he finished second in uh, Rookie of the Year voting. Uh, and that's going to be Bernie Carbo, who was drafted by the Reds, was their first ever draft pick. Think about that. Their 16th overall pick, picked before Johnny Bench, you know, as a 17-year-old. Um, and obviously Johnny Bench shot out on the scene and it was great from the get-go. It took a little while for Bernie Carbo, uh, who – you know, would be fair to say had issues with maturity and adjusting to, to major league life. And, and I'll get into actually, you know, the manager who's opposing him today is very much the reason why Bernie Carbo had a pretty lengthy career at the big leagues, uh, despite some of the things he was battling. Um, you know, he was, he was born in Detroit, Bernardo Carbo, um, and I mean, in his own words, he had an abusive and sadistic alcoholic for a father and, uh, you know, was a, uh, his mother was a coal miner's daughter who really struggled with depression, substance abuse. I mean, he, and, um, just, I, I'm not going to get, do a real deep dive into the background, 
but Bernie Carbone, there's a book, he has a, uh, an autobiography that he wrote with his, uh, his psychiatrist saving Bernie Carbo, but his background was really, in many ways it was brutal, um, you know, and he, you know, was an alcoholic at the age of 16 and, you know, dealt with drug abuse, cocaine abuse, dealed, yeah, man, it's, it's a, you know, when I look at Bernie Carbo, it's also during this time as a young kid, young, fun-loving kid who loved baseball, uh, loved to go and just hit. You know, he, that, that's what he loved to do. He, he went with this sort of closed stance, worked on hitting the opposite, opposite field as a lefty. He was really adept. Um, you know, he, you know, he really focused on the ability to hit to the left field and, you know, I, you know, scouts caught eye of him and he just had tremendous, tremendous hitting ability and a tremendous eye at the plate. One of the best, you know, guys who was able to discern balls and strikes and really find ways to do damage. He was very much sort of a modern hitter. Um, and, but, you know, I mentioned all those demons, all those struggles with his background. It's actually very interesting that, you know, you, you know, first round draft pick, he's got new money going in. He really struggled out the gate. He struggled defensively. He struggled offensively uh, in the minors at one point was hitting like 210. But then it's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, he, he would be called the idiot, the clown. He was very much, I mean, he had attention focus issues you know he he wasn't the most committed ball player despite his talent and it, and it makes me think of you know if maybe he had had more you know he had incredible gifts but maybe not the the focus needed to be a great all-time great um uh, baseball player but he certainly had the talent uh but that was very interesting of you know at double a in knoxville it was his manager sparky anderson at double A in Knoxville, who moved him to the outfield, really focused him in and really kind of lit that spark so that, you know, Carbo, he went from hitting 200 to hitting 281 with 20 home runs in the minors. Then the next year at triple A, hit 359, uh, was minor league player of the year. And then, you know, burst onto the scene in 1970, um, had a tremendous, tremendous season, hitting 310. 21 home runs and 63 RBIs and only 125 games, you know, had an on-base percentage of 454 as a rookie. I mean, that's incredible. Um, he was the sporting news rookie of the year, but the baseball writers association opted to go with Kurt, uh, uh, Kurt Morton, um, who actually, sorry, I believe it's Carl Morton. Sorry. Who, who pitched for the Expos won 18 games for the Expos. Um, you know, but then Car uh, Carbo was a little up and down. He had a he had a regression in 1971, and eventually, you know, ended up getting shipped out, getting traded very early on in the 1972 season to the Cardinals. And uh, he had a couple of uh, you know two very good seasons with the Cardinals, hit very well for them, and then of course uh, was part. Uh, I believe he was part of the Rick Wise trade uh, and being traded to Boston in '74. And and in, in this year, this year specifically for him, he was uh, as I mentioned was probably his best since his rookie year. Um, you know, despite only hitting two fifty seven, uh, and and really you know only playing in one hundred and seven games, he still walked eighty three times, hit fifteen home runs, 
played a lot of right field, played some DH. But as the season went on, with the emergence of Dewey Evans, Freddie Lynn, you still still have good old Carl Yastrzemski there. Uh, and then, of course, Jim Rice throughout the season. I, I mentioned this a couple times before of where Daryl Johnson, he had a luxury of hitters. And Bernie Carbo was the one who sort of got squeezed, and especially down the stretch. Uh, and he felt, and, and he had mentioned at times, you know, as the series was progressing and, you know, as Cecil Cooper struggled hit, struggled hitting or Freddie Lynn and you know, other people, have, Carbo was very kind of adamant feeling that he should be the one in the lineup. Um, and, you know, obviously he wouldn't be starting this game. Uh, Cecil Cooper was back and back at the leadoff spot, back at first base, and Yaz uh, move, moves back out to left. Um, but, man, he goes on to have an incredible, incredible moment here. It's a, you know, a little bit of spoilers, but it's a series-saving at-bat late in this game, um, which, you know, coming in cold, facing a reliever, is it's a tall order. But Bernie Carbo, man, I mean, there's basically stories about him of, you know, he he could be he could be sleeping, uh, he could be doing that, just call him up to hit, and he was so adept at doing it with that with that close stance, that quick bat, uh, man, dude, dude just knew how to hit, knew how to hit, and was always no matter what ready to hit. He might might not have been focused to be out there on the field or 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 you know do all the other aspects of being a professional baseball player. But you ask that guy to hit, he was going to go up there and give you and give you a great at bat. Um, and you know, in the year the years following, I mean, of course, with his antics and his um, aversion aversion to the rules, um, he had a tough time sticking on the Red Sox. Actually, get got traded back and forth, got traded to Milwaukee, then got traded back, and then got sent back out to Cleveland. Uh, eventually went back out to the National League uh, towards the end of his career um, and then was was done around 1980, age of 32. Interestingly enough, moved back to Detroit, went to cosmetology school, was a hairdresser, uh, but he also sl- slipped. I mean, he was always dealing with drug addiction at the major league level, um, but then he actually slipped into dealing. Um, he unfortunately lost his mother to, uh, to suicide in 93. He hit some real, real low points. But it, on the sort of positive note is, you know, he was able to, through, through treatment, counseling, faith, able to turn his life around. And, you know, in fact, he spent time being a minor league coach and minor league manager and, you know, was still very much involved in baseball uh, and was able to, you know, go from that low point. But uh, you know, part of me thinks, wow, what, what could have been if perhaps he had had that intervention earlier in his life? And, and, you know, perhaps the, you mean, I think there is now very much a focus in the major leagues with the players association, or at least there's an attempt to really focus on engaging players. Um, but, you know, back then there, the, those, that infrastructure, certainly even dealing with addiction services and stuff was not present. Um, but you know, just despite all the things he went through, Bernie Carbo, man, he had a pretty darn good, uh, baseball career for someone who, um, with all the struggle, with all the struggles he had, uh, he was an incredible talent. So 
we're now going to be moving into the game. As I mentioned, Louis Tiant's back. Uh, very excited for the Red Sox. And, and, and the really exciting thing for him is the fact that his father, who prior to this year hadn't seen him pitch in the big leagues because of travel restrictions. But it's this, I don't know, it's just this incredible thing that's that's so awesome to me that, you know, the this game opens up and there's Louis Tion's dad there pumping his fist, wearing a fedora. <laughs> I'm not sure if he was supposed to, but he had, he's got a cigarette in his mouth and uh, is just, you know, excited to cheer on, cheer on his son. Uh, and it's kind of like a little stark image of Louis, Louis Tion Sr. almost looks at, at this point a little bit frail and old. And there's his, his, his son who's a mountain of a man. Uh, anyway, take a listen to the broadcasters here. We've got uh, Joe Garagiola back, and we're going to have Dick Stockton uh, along with T- Tony Kubek. There is Louis Tiant's dad who came over to watch his son pitch. You know, I got a letter saying down in Cuba he pitched against Carl Hubble and beat him a one nothing ball game. They were calling him the Carl Hubble of Cuba, Louis Tiant Sr., left-hand pitcher. He's ready. And uh, hopefully for the Red Sox, so is Louis Tiant, who... Needs the victory tonight. The Red Sox do to avoid elimination. And the last time we had a World Series decided in six games was in 1959 when the Dodgers beat the Chicago White Sox. Joe, do you get the feeling I did in talking to the Cincinnati hitters? They have not been impressed by Tion's fastball. You've got to be impressed by these statistics that Alan Roth has come up and his success. But they really have not seen Tion's fastball like the one he had against Oakland in the championship series. I tell you, he's been a different pitcher every time out there. And tonight is a brand new night. Well, it really was incredible for Louis Tiant. Uh, you know, we we talked about in game one everything that he had been through, and you know, here he is already with two wins, two complete game wins in the World Series and looking for a third, and boy, does his team need it facing elimination. Um and it's uh you know, the the Reds, you know, looking at it from this point, you know, they've got to feel pretty good, but I, I think the delay of, of of the games as you know they didn't want to be facing Louis Louis Tiant one more time uh but I think you know where if you had asked Pete Rose Joe Morgan you know they uh they were thinking okay well we we got to him a little bit more than last time we're gonna get to him more this this game but to start out things actually kind of go Tiant's way uh he kind of starts off in uh in very good fashion we're actually gonna see there's immediate action right from the outset of the game of Pete Rose at the plate. Pete Rose has been hitting great so far, uh, been doing been doing an excellent job. Uh, really, I mean, you know, Morgan has had some big hits and some important walks and disruption on the base paths, uh, but Rose 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 has been consistent. Griffey's had a pretty good series so far. Bench and Perez have had their moments, and really the bottom of the order, Concepcion and Geronimo have come up huge. Foster. Foster has has piled up some hits, but nothing really impactful so far in this series. Um, where and and that's one of the things that I find very interesting about this series is there isn't just any one guy. Sometimes you have that one guy who's really dominating a series, but there's really spread out moments from both of these teams, and we're going to see that continue. But from the outset, um, you know, obviously with Cecil Cooper back playing first base, we got Yaz back in his familiar territory left field and well ball's going to find him first to bat 
of the day with Pete Rose at the plate. Rose has six hits and 18 times up. Has a double and a triple. And has driven in a run. And there's a line drive out to left field. Yastrzemski makes the one-handed count. Well, this is not artificial turf, and you can dive and fall on this grass to your liking. I thought I detected Yastrzemski slipping a little bit on his initial step, but he recovers and makes a good play. The field is in good condition. There might be a soft spot here and there. Keep in mind that they can play shallow here in Fenway, and nobody plays left field better than Yastrzemski here at Fenway Park. Few have played left field better than Carl Yastrzemski, especially at Fenway. And even with, at, at the age of uh, 36, his legs not being what they used to, uh, his anticipation, his, his ability to read hitters, position himself so well. And this is one of the things both of these teams were at the forefront of sort of advanced positional scouting and really you know, putting their players where they needed to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, you know, despite not having perhaps the best, most, most athletic defenders, you know, apart from, I mean, Dewey Evans was tremendous out and right, and Lynn was great in center, uh, but they were able to put guys in proper positions. Um, and, you know, the first inning ends up going pretty well for Louis Tiant. Uh, he ends up walking, uh, he ends up losing uh, Ken Griffey, uh, but gets um, Joe Morgan to pop out behind home plate and then gets uh, Johnny Bench to to sort of uh, strike out on a fastball down and away uh, and, you know, gets his team right in the dugout. Now, it was a very uh, interesting decision by Sparky Anderson to go with Gary Nolan in this game. He had the option to go with Jack Billingham. He had the option. I mean, he probably wasn't going to go with Fred Norman. Uh, but, you know, and I think Billingham was a little peeved because he felt, you know, with how he pitched in game two, how he pitched earlier uh, in the postseason that, you know, perhaps he had earned that. And, um, but, you know, I, I, I can maybe understand it from the sense that Gary Nolan was a starter at that point and Billingham had had some experience coming out of the pen. Um, or, I, I mean, who the heck, frankly, who the heck knows why uh, Sparky decided to go with Gary Nolan. He pitched pretty well in game three, uh, you know, despite only going four innings. Uh, but, you know, the, the only damage against him was a home run by Carlton Fisk. Um, but uh, this game, well, the first two batters ends off uh, going pretty well, gets, uh, gets Cecil Cooper to fly out weekly to center, uh, and then gets a rollover from Denny Doyle. But then uh, Yaz smokes one to right field, um, Carlton Fisk is able to poke one through the left side and up steps Freddie Lynn, who, uh, to this point of the series, you know, uh, you know, he had that, that RBI double in his last at bat at the end of game five, but, you know, hasn't really done much. Hasn't looked like the, the rookie of the year MVP, one of the best players in baseball, um, you know, and hasn't really done a job of driving in runs coming in but uh well he was looking for that to change and sometimes you get a pitch and you're able to do something with it Freddie Lynn thinks the off days was a definite break to him he's been in a little bit of a slump he's had time to go under the stands in center field make a lot of extra hitting practice try and get back in the groove Dostromsky's at second fist at first two down bottom of the first inning 
There's a high fly ball deep to right field. Going back, Griffey, forget it. It's gone. yesterday and the day, the day before and it paid off for him. That was not a Gary Nolan type pitch. He does not throw many balls right down in the middle of the plate like that one appeared to be. He's on the corners usually. Ball one to Rico Petroselli. Now he takes a strike. Fred Lynn has his first major league home runs. I have a hunch he's going to hit some more before he's through. <laughs> Petroselli along with Rick Burleson the leading hitters in the series with seven hits apiece. Red Sox lead it three to nothing. Two and one to count to Petroselli. Nolan and, uh, check that, Norman and Billingham working in the Reds' bullpen. And that's deep to center field. Going back to Geronimo on the warning track makes the catch. Petroselli hit that ball hard. Three runs, the big ball, Fredlin's home run. After an inning, it's three to nothing. That's got to be a great feeling for Freddie Lynn there. Finally squaring one up sending it into the bleachers in right field, feeling like yourself, like how you'd played all season. Uh, and uh, kind of tough there for Gary Nolan, who, I mean, the bullpen's already warming uh, there from the start. And, you know, you got the first two guys out, but then give up three consecutive hits, including a homer, and almost gave up damage to Rico Petroselli. And, uh, you know, but the, Nolan would settle down in the second inning. Louis Tiant would continue. I mean, very early on, it's, it's, it's interesting throughout this series, for most of the series, the Red Sox starters did a great job of holding the, the big red machine at bay early in the game. It would be kind of some late spurts of energy and late spurts of offense. Uh, and then kind of true for both teams, but the Red Sox, if we're looking at how things went, the Red Sox were typically the team to jump out first and the Reds would come later. Obviously, different situations for each game. Um, but actually, you know, in the, uh, in, in the top of the third, going ahead, uh, both, both sides went down in order in the second inning. Uh, Gary Nolan's out of the game already, Sparky Anderson. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been a starter under Sparky Anderson, always feeling, looking over your shoulder of, you know, feeling like, oh, well, if I mess up at all here, he's going to go to the bullpen. Uh, though, of course, if you were a reliever, you knew you were going to get work. You wouldn't just be warming up not to come in. Uh, you were warming up with purpose when you were sp uh, pitching for uh, for Sparky Anderson. When he would go in, Daryl Cheney uh, would end up flying out uh, on a sort of a, a nice play uh, by uh, by Yaz there uh, in left field, moving moving uh, moving back to the track. Uh, Pete Rose would end up, you know, he'd uh, he end up swinging a hot bat. <clears throat> pokes one through to the left side and uh you know that brought up Ken Griffey who's very quick at the plate and uh we're gonna see there's a little talk a little bit more talk about uh Louis Tion here on um, then we're gonna see a nice defensive play by Denny Doyle so Rose now with his seventh hit of the series 
Dick, I did an interview with uh, Luis Tiant for the Today Show, and uh, what a heartwarming thing to hear that great preacher say that God gave me two things I wanted this year, my family to come to see me and play in a World Series. I think that's a pretty good yardstick on what that man's made of. You know, the first time Tion pitched with his dad at present, couldn't get anybody out, just didn't have it that night. Ken Griffey, the batter, walked his first time up. Rose is on at first with two out. Top of the third inning, three to nothing, Boston. And a bouncing ball off the glove of Tion Doyle. Makes the play to retire the side. Might have been trouble if the ball had been deflected too much over to the right side. It's still three to nothing, Boston. Some early base runners, no trouble for Louis Tiant. Nice little play there. De- deflected off of his glove, and Doyle comes in to get the speedy Griffey. Um, <clears throat> so in the bottom of the third, in comes game four starter Fred Norman, uh, who kind of you know ended up ended up struggling, ended up having a, a five run inning hung on him there. But uh, early on, of course, Fred Norman pitched pretty well against the Red Sox and was looking, you know, perhaps Sparky was looking for some length here, but we was not going to get length, unfortunately. Uh, got Cecil Cooper to pop out weekly um, to shortstop, but then Denny Doyle uh, hits one down the right field line. Yaz ends up popping out, and with, you know, runner on second, two outs, they opt to walk Carlton Fisk. Well, then Freddie Lynn steps the plate, guy who had a three-run homer, but it's facing the lefty. He works a great, I mean, I tell you, a great at bat, works a walk, and now you've got bases loaded with Petroselli at the plate end. Sparky Anderson's back out to the mound again. Here come, here he goes to get Jack Billingham, the man many people thought would have been starting this game. And so here he is uh, having to face a tough situation, uh, facing a, you know, a guy who struggled this year and was actually struggling with an ear infection. Enrico Petroselli, uh, but was an established hitter, had come up with clutch hits time and again for the Red Sox, and, you know, already facing a 3-0 deficit, uh, pretty uh, high challenge there for Jack Billingham. Take a listen to what he's able to do here. Big cut by Petroselli, and he misses. A ball and two strikes, there's Dwight Evans in the on-deck circle, who hopes he has a chance to get up to bat. A ball, two strikes to Petroselli, two out, the base is loaded. Petroselli goes after a sharp-breaking ball way outside, and the side is retired. Billingham does the job. Nice pitch there by Jack Billingham coming in. You know, when you got the bases loaded, uh, and thankfully it's two outs, you know, tough situations still. Attack hitters come right at him uh, and is then able to get him to chase on a breaking ball. Having a guy like Johnny Bench behind the plate, you're pretty confident he's going to be able to block it. You're not going to give up a run in that situation. Uh, Louis Tiant would end up having a little bit of struggles in the top of the fourth. I mean, not struggles. Gives up a, a hit to Tony Perez. And then actually, uh, there's sort of a, with two outs, there's a play that Rick Burleson really, he probably could have opted to have gone to first base. Um, but uh, he throws it away trying to go for a fielder's choice at second. Um, but no, no damage done. Uh, Concepcion pops out weekly uh, to second. Tiant really is able, early on in this game, able to knuckle down with two outs uh, and get guys out. 
And then, you know, obviously with Jack Billingham on the mound, we're going to actually, he's going to, he put out a fire last inning, but then he's going to almost get into his own mess, his own jam. Uh, but he, you know, has skills to get himself out, out of it. Ends up giving uh, Dewey Evans leads off the inning with a ground rule double to right. Uh, makes me think, you know, man, uh, perhaps the the Red Sox should have swapped Petroselli and Evans had Evans hit in sixth uh, with the way he hit that season and the way he was uh, hitting uh, in that series. But, you know, don't mind me. Uh, then ends up being giving up a walk to Rick Burleson. Uh, they advance on a bunt by Louis Tiant, a nice bunt by Louis Tiant. Actually, not a nice bunt. I, I'm mistaken. He pops the ball up, but he pops it up over Tony Perez's head and allows you know both runners to advance. Um, and then you know, so it's second and third, nobody out. Uh, second and third, one out. Uh, he's able to get Cecil Cooper to ground out to first, hit a chopper. You know, again, I, I talk about how second and third, first and third is a situation where you should be going as a runner. You should be, you read the down angle, force them to make a play. Uh, but the Red Sox who already, it, it's interesting to me, they were very aggressive with their base running earlier in this series. And this seems like an opportunity to have maybe pressed the issue. Uh, but they opt not to. Uh, and then uh, with uh, Denny Doyle at the plate, uh, Billingham is able to work himself out of the jam once again. Evans at third, Burleson at second. The infield is in as Joe Morgan shouts something to Billingham. We're in the last of the fourth. One man out. And a slow hit bounding ball. Perez will go to first. The runners hold. Two out. Evans couldn't go. Burleson is on at second, two men out. And it'll be up to Denny Doyle to see if the Red Sox can add to their three-run lead. Dick, have you seen Doyle any time during the course of the year in this situation if they play too far back with his bat control, lay down a bunt, try and score that runner for third? He has not done it this year in that situation. I'll tell you what he's done in this series, though, Tony, uh, with men on, he's chased that first pitch. They get it close, he's going to go to Wacken. Rose is up. He's looking for a possibility of a bunt. Low. Ball one. So now with two out, the infield, of course, has moved back. Rose, however, of course, stays in on the grass at third. Tony, as you mentioned, the outfield is shallow. And shaded around to the left on Doyle, who takes the strike, one and one. Beautiful night for baseball. 62 degrees. Everyone thought it would be uh, sub-freezing. It's a great rule. You can wet your fingers outside the pitching surface like it's going to dry by the time you get back to the rubber. And Joe Morgan charges this one. will make the play, and the Red Sox do not score. Billingham pitches out of it. That's a nice job there by Jack Billingham to work himself out of his own jam. Um, nice defensive play there from Joe Morgan and, and really two good defensive plays. Uh, again, the Red Sox maybe could have been a little bit more aggressive, um, but, but, you know, at this point in the game, they're up three, nothing. They're feeling pretty good about themselves, but that, you know, that sequence that right there in, in both of those innings, the ability of Jack Billingham to get out of two jams is huge. Uh, 
you know, we saw in different games in this series. So we saw in game four, the Reds bullpen was excellent at holding at holding the Red Sox down, gave the gave the big red machine a chance to come back. Ultimately, Louis Tiant did a great job uh, of uh, keeping keeping the Reds at bay. Um, but, you know, it's just one of those things that can be it can be a little tough to do. Um, you know, to manage all of those necessary things. Um, but ultimately, you know, what's, what I find, what I find interesting about Sparky Anderson was just his, his confidence in his bullpen, his confidence in, Hey, we're going to go multiple guys. We're, we're, and even in a game where, you know, this isn't an elimination game for the Reds. You know, they've got a 3-2 lead. They only have to take one out of two here at Fenway. Um, but, you know, it, there's the, there's always the belief when you have a chance to close out a series, you take it. You don't want you don't want to give a team another chance to come back, and especially at Game 7, all bets are off. Uh, so Sparky's is very much managing this game as if it's a Game 7, um, as if there's no tomorrow you know, throwing those bullpen guys and, and you know, the broadcasters uh, talk about, Hey, they can have a long, they can have a long rest uh, through uh, October, November, uh, December, and January before they would have to come back for uh, before pitchers and catchers report in February. Um, but that's, you know, that's an excellent job by Jack Billingham to get out of a jam and the Reds are going to be rewarded by that. Uh, interesting enough. So, um, you know, I talked about how, Jack Billingham did a good job. Well, his day's done. Only in an ending, only in an ending in the third for him. And already, you know, we're we're going to see another pinch hit. Uh, Ed Armbrister is going to end up pinch hitting here in the top of the fifth uh, after a Geronimo fly ball to right. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's just it's just interesting to me. Of all right, it's you know you're going to enter the bottom of the fifth, and we're already at the fourth. We're going to be at the fourth pitcher for the Reds. Um, but the game is going to be a lot different outset heading into the bottom of the fifth than it was entering the top of it. Because uh, after Armbrister works a walk, Pete Rose, uh, you know, really battles, has a great at-bat, uh, ends up getting a single up, up the middle, and upsteps Ken Griffey. Ken Griffey, who obviously his son is much more famous, but he's had a pretty, you know, he's had a pretty gar- darn good series, had the go-ahead hit in game two, uh, had had uh, an RBI double. Uh, had already had three doubles to this point in the series, and here he is uh, in a two. Sh- and the you know the count get ends up going to two strikes, and with runners on first and second, facing Louis Tian. Here's Ken Griffey at the plate. One out, two on, two and two. The count to Ken Griffey. And a fly ball deep to center field. Lynn going way back, way back, and he can't make the play. It's off the wall. Evans will recover, and Lynn is not up. He has been shaken up. One run comes in. Here comes Rose with the second run, and Freddie Lynn is hurt in the corner in the dead center field. He must have hit his head against that wall, and he is really shaken up. And Darrell Johnson, trainer Charlie Moss, going out to center field. Griffey on at third with a triple, two runs in, 
And I've never heard Fenway Park as silent as it is right now. He hit it hard. He was going full tilt when he jumped, turned his back to that wall. We don't know if he hit his head, but he sure jarred his back very hard. Tony, look at the, the crowd. He's just standing stunned. up. They're all standing. The big hush over the ballpark. You just don't know. There's a shot look of the crowd. The, have you ever seen a ballpark like this during the, a game? The concern is here because he gave it a real challenge as he got up. But as you pointed out, he hit that wall so hard and he didn't move. Evans, Yastrzemski, Darrell Johnson, and the trainer, Charlie Moss, and Stan Williams, uh, the pitching coach out there. He was shaken up. That's about as deep as he can go in that area in left center field. Looked like an off-speed or a breaking pitch that Griffey hit. He jumped on it, and Lynn did get a good jump on it, just ran out of ballpark, but it didn't stop him. He went into that wall very hard. Let's look at it again. Freddie Lynn on the ball off the bat of Griffey, charging full speed in the deepest part of the park to left center field. Right here, he tries to kick off with that right foot, but he slipped on the concrete, and when his right foot slipped, it spun him around, and he smacked into it with his back. I did not see his head hit, Joe, but his back no, his sure back. was hit hard. He took one quick look at that wall and knew he had some room and gave it that extra effort. That wall didn't stop him at all. He was on a warning track, I believe, when he took the look. No question it was the back as we saw the replay, and this is a tough kid, you know. He played football for John McKay at Southern California. It was a defensive back. You've talked on previous telecast over the radio, no, Dick, about his tremendous body control, his diving catches, his going into the wall and not really being hurt. Right there, you saw that right foot slip off the wall, and that was the key, I think, that spun him around, and he really took a bad jar. Tony, he has made several diving catches this year, going to right and left center field. He has gone against the wall before. This is the first time we have seen Fred Lynn get hurt on any kind of a play in the outfield. There it is. He just spun himself around. Amazing effort. He's going to stay in. Well, he's accounted for the three Red Sox runs, but now the Reds have forged back, trailing three to two. One out on the tying run is at third as Griffey. On at third with the fourth extra base hit of the series. He had three doubles previously. And Joe Morgan, the hitter. Tying run at third. One out. And we talked about Griffey being a key man for Tion, and now he really has to face the iron of the Cincinnati lineup. A tough break there for the Red Sox, uh, but ended up maybe not being as worse as it looked initially uh, with Freddie Lynn going back to the wall. I mean, kind of in the immediate, uh, in the in the immediacy and how he reacted, he's almost like sitting at the wall. You think he smacked his head or really injured himself, but he kind of a little bit more just sort of banged up his back, um, you know, and obviously, you know, good that he stays in the game. Um, you know, this wasn't like a major injury for him. I mean, Freddie Lynn went on to have a great career, uh, but it was just sort of, I mean, you, you mentioned there's like how quiet the ballpark was. It really took the air out of everything. I mean, he makes that catch crowd goes crazy and of course the reds are still up three nothing but now it's a three two game it's a one run game ken griffey's at third base with one with one out in the middle of the reds lineup coming up and joe morgan um you know 
it's a it's it's a really tense moment. I mean, a game that sort of felt like it was in hand. You got Louis Tiant, you're up three nothing, but now you haven't been able to score anything on the Reds bullpen. And here are and here come here comes the big red machine. Uh and Tiant perhaps showing some signs of uh of, of fatigue with how many innings he threw so far in this series. And I mean the ultimate thing too is, well, the Reds were adjusting to him and and he maybe wasn't uh gonna be as sharp as he was earlier in the series. Um it's real whew, I mean it's basically like, okay, take a deep breath. You know, at, at at the very least, you know, try 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 to get an out here. Um, he does end up getting uh, Joe Morgan to pop out to third base. A uh, you know, a great uh, great job there by Louis Tiant. But up steps Johnny Bench, and uh, one thing that they remarked before this at bat was, you know, obviously Freddie Lynn had the home run uh, to right center field, and you know there have been some balls off the right field, uh, off the center field wall, and and sort of in 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 in, uh, in stuff to- towards the right field line, but no one's hit one off the green monster yet, and no one's hit one over the monster yet. Uh, but up steps Johnny Bench with a runner on third, with a chance to tie the game. Johnny Bench struck out swinging in the first inning and took a call third strike in the fourth. Two out, Griffey at third, three to two the score. We're in the top of the fifth inning, Boston leading Cincinnati. And there's a line drive, left field. Yastrzemski going back, will play it off the wall. Griffey scores the tying run, and Bench is held to a single as Yastrzemski plays the left field wall perfectly. And that's the first ball to hit the left field wall, and the score is tied. Watch Jazz do what he has done better than anybody else in the history of this ballpark, play the wall. Bench did not hit the ball well. He looked like he was fooled. He reached for the ball, might have hit it on the end of the bat, but the wall is finally hit. Strength of bench. But Yastrzemski plays it like a high line player. Long single. It's a 3-3 ball game. The Red Sox got three in the first. The Reds tied with three in the fifth. Yaz is able to prevent, prevent a double there. Again, no one plays off the monster better than Carl Yastrzemski, but... There go the Reds again, and it's a brand new ball game, 3-3. All the work they did to get out ahead, and and now, hey, the Reds feel like they've taken all of the momentum in this game, uh, especially with how well their bullpen has been pitching. Um, And uh, Tion's able to get out of the inning. He ends up striking out Tony Perez. But the the thing I remark of, you know, so far uh, to this series, it hasn't been a great series for – Morgan, Bench, and Perez, really the, the, the heart of the order, the, the, the heart of the big red machine. Um, and, but they've each, in, in, you know, in their own ways, they've had games where they've had very impactful hits. You go back to that Johnny Bench double, uh, that go-ahead double. It, well, not the go-ahead, but that leadoff double in game two and the home run he hit in game three, and Tony Perez hitting two home runs in game five, and Joe Morgan had a walk-off hit in the series. It has wreaked havoc on the bases the times he has been on. Uh, you know, it's the overall numbers might, uh, you know, sort of belie the, the impact that those guys had. I mean, but also credit to the Red Sox pitchers really found ways to, li- you know, to limit their, their dominance of the series, but they've still found ways to be very impactful. Um, and, you know, we're going to continue on. We've got a new pitcher, 
Clay Carroll does his job. Uh, he uh, he ends up he ends up giving up a single uh, to Carlos Tremsey to lead off the inning, but is able to able to get the next three guys out on two ground balls and a fly ball. That's what Carroll did. He really came at guys, attacked them, had a hard sinking fast, kind of threw like a heavy fastball, really adept at, uh, at getting ground balls. Um, but his day would also be done. We're going to be having yet another pitch hitter the next inning. Um, Tiant's able to get F- uh, Foster and Concepcion out, uh, but then Geronimo gets a ba- base hit, and Terry Crowley uh, ends up pitching for Clay Carroll. He ends up actually getting uh, an infield single, a little bit of a misplay by Burleson. Um, but then there's a ball right up the middle. Burleson uh, able to make up for it, uh, just to be able to tag, get the third out at second base on an on, on a unassisted ground ball. Um, so, so there we are, six innings, um, still 3-3. The Reds bring on their fifth pitcher of the day. It's already their fifth pitcher of the day. And also keep in mind, their bench is now we- weaning down too because uh, they've already used three pinch hitters. Um, and Pedro Bourbon comes in, um, tall, lanky, veteran, threw hard, uh, really uh, kind of was a – not your typical reliever because he really kind of had a lot of pace to him. A lot of times, especially relievers now, you're thinking of like a Pedro Baez who it might take him three minutes to throw two pitches. Uh, that's not uh, not how Pedro Borbon pitched, but um, he worked around a walk in the bottom of the sixth to bring us to the top of the seventh inning. And here's where, you know, it's just these guys have seen Tiant a lot, and I mean a lot, in this series. Uh, and there, there's an old adage, the more you see a guy, the better chance you are. I mean, of course, over the like extent of different ball games. I mean, you you might learn different things off of off of hitters and pitchers. There's adjustments to be made, uh, but what we're gonna see here is really a kind of a struggle for uh, for Tiant. You know, this is the this is the, his. Uh, actually, I believe it's gonna be his almost his fourth time through the order in this game, uh, and it it really doesn't go as planned. Um, ends up getting a single to right. Uh, Ken Griffey's able to get one on the first pitch. And, and one thing I noticed on this play, Cooper's kind of playing in. They really respected Griffey's speed, maybe thinking about him bunting. I think if he give if he backed up a little bit, this is probably a ground out. Uh, then Joe, Joe Morgan is able to poke one through to left field. Um, and so it's first and second. Now we've got the, uh, the hardy order, Johnny Bench and Tony Perez coming up. And well, Tiant actually he bounces back. Uh, he's able to get Johnny Bench to to sort of hit a weak fly out to left field, uh, and then gets Tony Perez to hit one out to right. Uh, and Griffey ended up moving to third base. So up steps George Foster. George Foster, who they mention, oh, you know, he's kind of, you know, I think to this point he's had like five or six hits uh, so far in the series. Nothing really impactful. Uh, he's been on base a couple of times. Actually, kind of the main thing about George Foster so far in this series is the fact that the Red Sox have taken advantage of his weak arm in left field. I mean, that's kind of the most notable thing for Foster, who this was Foster's first real year being a full-time starter, not unlike Dewey Evans uh, for the Red Sox. And, uh, well, Teon's able to get it to two strikes. 
looking for a chance to put Foster away, get his team back in the dugout in the seventh inning. But George Foster had other ideas. And Morgan is getting a big lead. Worry about one man, George Foster. That's who they're worried about. Now he wants to walk a while. Morgan appears to be ready to take off again at first base. And they're going to give it to him. There he goes. Straight away center field. Lynn is going back, back, back. That ball is off the wall. One run is in. Here comes Morgan. He'll score. And the Cincinnati Reds lead 5-3. to three. Ball hit high off the top of the wall. A double for George Foster. He has been one of the men, or the key man, who's been able to figure out Louis Tian. So, 5-3, to three, the Cincinnati Reds lead in the, in the top half of the seventh inning here. A double by Foster. What an at-bat there by George Foster. You know, able to stay back, kind of a little bit of a hanging breaking ball. Uh, so you got the got the runner, got the runner Joe Morgan going, crushes one to center. For playing in Riverfront, that's probably a fly out to center field based off of the the dimensions. But playing at Fenway, you got to deal with the quirks of that ballpark, and uh, easily scores two runs. And just like that, the Reds are nine outs away from a World Series victory with a two run lead. Uh, that and you know, as as Joe Morgan comes in, you can see him fist pumping, pointing out to Foster, being like, "Had a boy, there you go." Uh, like as I mentioned, Foster, you know, while he had picked up some hits this series, he had kind of, I in my view, had been sort of a net negative uh, for the Reds so far. But there he is, putting the Reds ahead, uh, you know, with a chance to 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 end the World Series here today. Um, you know, Tiant's, uh, you know, t- kind of tough look for Tiant. Uh, again, Daryl Johnson, I, I forget if it was in this inning or the inning before where, you know, he came out to talk to Tiant and, and just he was averse to going to the pen. Simply was. And it worked out for him in game, in, in game four, went against him in game five, and it's prob- and it looks like it's going against him here. In game six, uh, Tiant seeming to kind of run out of gas. He's able to get Dave Concepcion to ground out, but the uh, the Red Sox are not able to respond against the Reds' bullpen. Uh, Pedro Bobone, he, he ends up having real easy inning, eight-pitch inning, no damage, no threat, uh, gets really weak contact from the Red Sox here. And that brings us to the top of the eighth with Cesar Geronimo leading off. Curiously, Louis Tiant's still pitching. Uh, I, I find that, you know, kind of interesting. He's already given up five runs. It looks like the the Reds have his number today. Uh, but Daryl Johnson's going to leave him in to start the eighth inning. But up steps Cesar Geronimo, who's already come up with huge hits and huge plays so far in this series. and was looking to do it again. Top of the eighth inning, it'll be Cesar Geronimo to lead it off for the Cincinnati Reds. 
We may see a pitcher actually come to bat for the Reds tonight, Joe. Dick, I was just looking down there to see who was going to be there, and I saw Barbona had a double check there because that's really been what's been happening with the pitcher. Well hit right field, that ball. If it's fair, she's gone. It is a fair ball. Home run for Geronimo. Geronimo, a fair ball, a home run right down that right field line, and it's a 6-3 ball game. That's his second home run of this series. And on the first pitch in the eighth inning, here comes Daryl Johnson. First pitch, Geronimo, a home run. And Cincinnati getting a little bit closer to a world's championship as Daryl Johnson makes the call to his bullpen, a left-hander Barrett. The Reds just six outs away. Their last world championship was in 1940. Tony, I got to believe when Tian walks off, the picture will say it all. No question. Here comes Moret, and there goes Tian. But this is the story right here. through clutch situations in September championship series. Two complete game victories. First two since 1971 and Steve Glass, a local hero. Luis Tion gets his jacket and just going to watch it for now. So we've got a break in the action here at Boston. The score is Cincinnati 6 and Boston 3. Well, you heard the boo birds out. Uh, those were intended for Daryl Johnson. They weren't for Louis Tiant. I mean, you heard the ovation Louis Tiant gave. I mean, there was certainly no ill will harbored towards uh, towards Big Louis because, um, I mean, he gave it his all. I mean, that's one thing about him is that he was going to go out there. He was going to battle. Uh, you know, seven innings, six runs given up. Looks bad on the box score, absolutely. Um, but perhaps his manager should have had some adjustments and gotten him, gotten him out of there. Um but you know that's just not how Daryl Johnson managed. Uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna see Roger Roger Murray. They say Moret. It's Murray. Um, you know because uh, I'm not sure if they asked Ro- Rogelio how uh, he pronounced it. Um, but it's it's Murray. Um, but uh, you know it just seems like man maybe last inning or or the inning before you know when he was facing Griffey or all that stuff. There could have been an argument made. Um, you know, but so, uh, Moret, sorry, Murray, <laughs> there, I get them going there, but he's able to, to, to get the side down, uh, ends up, yeah, setting, setting the next three batters. I mean, and, and, uh, gets Bourbon out, gets Pete Rose and gets King Griffey out. Uh, and so that is going to send us to the bottom of the eighth inning. The Reds just six outs away from a world series victory with a three run lead and still, with their two horse horses in the pen, McEnany and Eastwick, uh, yet to enter the game. Um, I'll let the broadcasters kind of set the stage for the for this incredible bottom of the eighth inning. Bottom of the eighth for the Boston Red Sox. It'll be Lynn Petroselli and Evans, and it'll be against Borbone. Lynn hit a three-run homer in the first inning. That's been all the scoring. And that came off with Gary Nolan, Fred Norman, Jack Billingham, Clay Carroll, and now Bourbon have held the Red Sox to only three hits. So the bullpen has really done a job for the Cincinnati Reds. And two of the key men are still down there and available, the two youngsters, Eastwick, who has two victories. He's a right-hander. 
and McEnany. They were big men all year long for Sparky Anderson, and he's still got them available in case the Red Sox get something going. Bottom of the eighth. Four bone against Lynn. Off his leg, Barbone challenging it, but he can't make a play. Lynn, a single. Tremendous effort by Barbone. And you saw Beth jump out from behind home plate. Right off the leg. Watch Beth jump out, yelling to Barbone not to throw the ball. Hold it. Don't throw it away. Don't let that man get in scoring position. That man behind the plate is always thinking. He'd have grabbed him if he tried to throw it. Obviously, you hear there at the end, uh, Freddie Lynn hits one off of Murray and uh, is able to reach first base. Lynn was looking a little slower than usual. I think that back injury was uh, was certainly affecting him. Uh, but based off of the position of the ball, uh, plenty of t- uh, plenty of time for him to get over to first without a throw. Um, and then <laughs> things things get away from Pedro Bourbon. Uh, he ends up uh, you know getting to a two strike count on Petroselli, but ends up losing him. Uh, it kind of, once he got to two strikes, it kind of seemed like he was really rushing on the mound. I mentioned before, he pitched with a lot of pace. He didn't really take his time um, as, as many relievers do, and he ends up walking him, and then it's decision time now. So we got first and second. We have a three-run lead, but up steps Dewey Evans, who, if you remember back to game three, had a game-tying home run off of Raleigh Eastwick. And curiously, Eastwick is who Sparky Anderson turns to now. He brings in Eastwick with the tying run up. Now, obviously, Eastwick has been great. He's been the closer. Uh, It almost seems like a curious decision, but brings in Eastwick, and he comes right at Dewey Evans. It's a mano-a-mano matchup, hard fastballs. Fastball's kind of tailing up and in. Some real big swings from Evans, some foul balls. But Eastwick wins this battle, ends up striking him out. And then Burleson comes up uh, after falling behind 1-0. He gets a shot, a fastball up, hits it hard to left, just not hard enough, right at George Foster. And now also becomes decision time. Obviously, we're going to have a pinch hitter. It's going to be Bernie Carbo. Now, Sparky Anderson, I mentioned if, if you go back to game two, remember Bernie Carbo pinch hit, had a great, great at-bat against Eastwood. Hit a ball really hard. He's already had a pinch hit home run in this series. He's known as a really good hitter. That's what, that's what Bernie Carver's, Carbo's known as. So he's got McEnany warming up. He's got Will McEnany, who gets lefties out, and Carbo doesn't hit lefties very well. But the assumption here is that if McEnany's brought in, Juan Beniquez is going to hit. And so, hey, Eastwick, he's been my guy. Sparky's going to stick with him. You know, we hey, we've got a three-run lead. East, Eastwick, I trust him. Because the worst that happens here, this is a game-tying home run. It's not a go-ahead home run and all that stuff. But eh, Sparky's not thinking about the worst outcome. Uh, and But still, I might prefer a matchup of Will McEnany versus Juan Beniquez uh, versus Carbo, who's had really great at-bats, and Sparky Anderson knew Bernie Carbo. Uh, and perhaps there was something there 
uh, in terms of he felt like Eastwick maybe had some type of advantage. And early on in the at-bat, it kind of does. You know, and this is another mano-a-mano matchup. He's coming hard with fastballs, you know, right at Bernie Carbo. Carbo takes some big hacks, and we get to a 2-2 count. And, well, this is just one of the iconic moments in baseball history, but I'm going to... I'm not going to play the pitch that becomes the iconic moment. I'm going to play the pitch before because it's really important. Bernie Carbo does something pretty incredible to survive in this at bat and give him chance, give himself a chance to do something incredible. Two-two pitch. Just did get a piece of it to stay alive. You talk about fighting off a good pitch. Looked like he hit that out of the catcher's glove. He did. Ball was down low. He did fight it off. Just got a piece of it. Just protecting the plate. That's a kind boy. If you get a foul ball, you're really happy you did your job. Deep center field, way back, way back. We're tied up. What a moment for Bernie Carbo and the Red Sox down to the brink, four outs away from your season being over. You're down three. You're in a two-strike count. You get the the balls by him. I mean, they don't really talk about it there. I mean, he basically takes it out of Johnny Bench's glove. He just puts his hands down. You know, it's almost done in the at-bat and then gives himself a chance and hits the ball over center field. 
I mean, he he, uh, he he's quoted as saying, you know, he you know he has no idea how he hit that ball, uh, the the foul off one, but he knew okay, Eastwick's going to come with a fastball out. He's going to come with a fastball over the plate. He's going to come right at me. All I got to do is time it up. Hits it to center. He wasn't sure if it was a home run, but as soon as he saw Geronimo turn his back and 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 look up, he knew we got a tie ball game. It's out of here. I mean, just. I mean, you can hear it from the crowd. It's just one of those moments. Like there, there, there've been other times. I think of like in uh, game game seven of the uh, of the 2016 series when Rajay Davis hits that game tying home run off of a world as Chapman, um, or you know, it's just like these moments where you're like, "Holy crap! Holy cow! Just wow! Baseball, baseball is amazing." I mean, these moments where you're at the brink and you come back to give yourself a chance. Um, and uh, we're, I'm gonna, we're going to hear uh, a little bit of more commentary. Obviously you heard, you heard Eastwick was able to strike out Cooper on three pitches, you know, able to, able to keep it there at a tie game. That heads us to the top of the ninth end. Well, I just got to play this. Obviously Bernie Carbo. Now then they, they do a double switch. They bring in Dick Drago to pitch and, Carbo goes out to left. Yaz goes to first. Carbo, who argued he should have been starting, he should have been in the outfield, you know, kind of from the start of this series. Well, now he now he has almost a little bit of an opportunity to do that. Um, man, just again, it, it's really, really incredible. It, you know, some of the moments that you get and that you're able to see in baseball. Um, you know, and obviously Bernie Carbo, he might have gotten a chance if they had a DH to to be in this series. But just listen to the this comments comments from uh Kirgiola. In fact, actually, Tony Kubek's not that, not up in the booth because with uh with six outs to go and a three run lead, he's down in the Reds clubhouse because they're expecting that the Reds are gonna win the World Series. Uh but here uh, this quote and uh, this back and forth from Stockton and uh Gergiola on just the the joys of baseball and what what this moment means to Bernie Carbo and the Red Sox. Carbo's in left field, and there is Carbo when he sees the ball go into the seats. Look at the reaction. Look at the fans, and look at Carbo. Ah, yes. Can't help but always think of Campanella's great line as we watch Drago, the new pitcher, coming in. you got to be a man to play baseball, but you have to have a lot of little boy in you. And there was a lot of little boy jumping out of Carbo, who's now in left field. And Yastrzemski has moved over to first base. We're in the top of the ninth. And Dick, I tell you, it's only fitting that these two clubs would battle like this because they've been battling throughout the whole season, through the championship series, and in this World Series, it's really been seesaw. This has to be one of the better World Series we have seen in recent years. You talk about three one-run games, an extra inning game in there, and now a 6-6 contest. And I'll tell you something, uh, the Red Sox have come back, and it's incredible that a club so young that hasn't really had the baptism under fire in postseason play until this season has the poise to come back time and time again. Just incredible baseball. It's so, ah, I I just love it. And uh, love it for a guy like Bernie Carbo. I mean, obviously we talked about everything that he had been through and that he would go through, but he has this shining moment in baseball history and 
it's probably, I mean, look at that. Look at that. It's actually not even the most famous hit from this game. And oh, you're thinking, okay, we're in the ninth inning. The end of this game is probably coming soon. Oh, we've got, we've still got a ways to go. We've still got a ways to go. And we've still got great moments leading up to the iconic moment of this game. Um, Dick Drago comes in, sets the, uh, sets the Red Sox down in order. No problem at all. Pretty weak. Con- two foul pop-ups in a, in a ground out to third. And, uh, well, things would continue to be rough for Raleigh Eastwick, who, you know, was relied on as basically the Reds' most trusted reliever, as the guy to go to in the back end of games. Um, you know, we saw him uh, falter in game three, but then was able to step right up and, uh, and pitch really well. And, I mean, you know, apart, you know, prior to this, apart from the home run to Evans, had been excellent, had really hardly faced any trouble. But it would continue for him. He ends up walking Denny Doyle, not really close on any of the pitches, gets ahead of Carl Yastrzemski, but then leaves, leaves a fastball there that he rips into right, and Doyle advances to third. And that's going to do it for Eastwick. Finally brings in McEnany. They intentionally walk Carlton Fisk and up steps Freddie Lynn with a chance to win the ball game, force a game seven. All he has to do is basically put it in play, get a fly ball. But was that going to be enough? We'll take a listen to what happens here. And how much tighter a spot, how much hotter a seat can you want than the bottom of the ninth? With the bases loaded, nobody out. There goes Carlton Fisk to first. Yastrzemski goes to second. Here comes Fred Lynn. Lynn hit a three-run homer in the first. He had a base hit in the eighth. He scored two runs. He's knocked in three. Griffey and Geronimo are shallow. The left fielder, Foster, moves over to the line. He's not quite as shallow as the other two outfielders. The infielder's in as well. It's all right here, Joe. Here it is. High fly ball, left field. Foster's got a shot. They're tagging up at third. Here comes the throw. It is in time. Doyle is out. Foster to bench. A double play. Here is the throw. Foster made the catch in foul territory. He needed a perfect throw to keep the Reds from losing this game. And it was. And Bench make the swipe tag. No question about it. Denny Doyle out at home. Watch the tag by Bench. It's the same kind of tag Fisk made in Cincinnati, like a first baseman. Makes the grab and one hand and swipe tag gets him before he gets down. Denny Doyle is out. A double play. Sparky Anderson is out there once again. Oh, brother. Second guessers may have a picnic. You always have a picnic when the man is out. Foster made a decision. This time it turned out right. Don Zimmer has been an aggressive third base coach all season long. He believes that it takes a very fine throw to get the men most of the time. Here is Doyle. Now there's his start. He put on the speed, but it took a fine throw, and as you pointed out, a good tag by Johnny Bench to double off 
Denny Doyle at home plate. Dostremski went to third, holding at first fist. This game, man, has just got so much. Uh, it's just, uh, just absolutely incredible. I mean, come on. A, a winning run cut down at home plate by the guy who had the go-ahead hit earlier in the game and who the Red Sox have been running on this entire series comes up with a laser throw. I mean, it was a pretty tough catch right up against the wall in that kind of tough area. It was actually in foul territory or kind of right on the line. It's a ball you got to catch and comes up, fires in. Johnny Bench gets the tag down. And you go from bases loaded, no out, to first and third, two out. And then Petroselli ends up grounding out the third. Uh, Pete Rose actually makes a pretty nice play. Uh, to send this thing to extra, an elimination game, going to extras. I'm in, baby. <laughs> Come on. Uh, man, it's just this game. I mean, because it would feel from the from the Reds' perspective of, okay, well, the Red Sox took all the momentum. We went to the ninth inning. Okay, that's it. They, they, they came back and won. But no, both teams are still going to have to fight it out. I mean, the Reds, they're doing their darndest to end this tonight. They do not want to go to a Game 7, especially because they've used pretty much everyone. The only pitchers that haven't been used are Don Gullett because he's not getting used tonight. He's about the only guy who can bring them any sort of length. Pat Darcy and Clay Kirby. Well, Pat Darcy would be coming in because in the top of the 10th, well, you guessed it. <laughs> you guessed it in the top of the 10th. They were going to pinch it again. Uh, you know, Dave Concepcion uh, ended up uh, getting a single off of uh, off of Drago and ended up stealing second base. And with two outs, Dan Dreesen ends up uh, ends up coming up and he pops out to left. Kind of a nice play by Carbo there. Uh, and then so we bring on our is this our eighth pitcher? Yeah, it's something like that. It's incredible. I mean, the number of pitchers in this game, I think it totals at like twelve or thirteen once we get to the end of it. But the Reds have used everybody. They've used all of their pinch hitters pretty much. I mean, it's still they. It's almost like a clown car of still more people coming out there. Um, but Pat Darcy comes in. He does a great job. Gets uh, sets the side down in order, uh, and then that leads us to the top of the eleventh. Drago's still on. Uh, he ends up very controversially, apparently hits Pete Rose. Now I, I, I'm I'm not sure if he did. Uh, I, I'm a little. Honestly, I'm a little skeptical that he did. Um, but it said maybe he nicked his glove. So then up steps Ken Griffey Jr., who is most likely going to be bunting in this situation. You, you know, when it gets the extras, uh, umpires back then, unless you were Johnny Bench or Carl Yastrzemski, you probably weren't going to be asked to bunt. Well, the thing is with a bunt, when you've got guys like Carlton Fisk behind the plate, well, you better lay down a good one. And that's not what happens here. Two balls and no strikes. Once again, Griffey takes a look. Managers have been known to switch when that batter gets ahead. Two balls and no strikes. Potatoes infielders hate to see that. Come charging in, have a big guy swing that bat, boy. That's no man's land. 
one in in front of the plate. Fisk is going to go to second. The throw is in time. Fine throw by Carlton Fisk. Gets Pete Rose, who is head first sliding in the second. A lot of people have talked about two of the fine catches in baseball in this series. We've seen Johnny Bench's arm take a look at Carlton Fisk. A bullet to second and a big play getting the lead runner, Pete Rose. Carlton Fisk. Unanimous Rookie of the Year in the American League in 1972. Example of his arm, huh? He picked that ball up with the bare hand, which is always a tough play. Set himself and threw a strike to Burleson in time to get Pete Rose. So there's one away. Here is Joe Morgan. That's a heck of a play by Carlton Fisk, pouncing on that ball, throwing out Rose, who was a very excellent base runner. Um, and, and that's important because Joe Morgan's coming up now. You want, you don't want Joe Morgan up with runners in scoring position. The guy would come through. Um, and uh, keep Carlton Fisk's name in mind. He's uh, he's going to come up pretty big here uh, pretty soon. Uh, but this sets up Joe Morgan at the plate and uh, Ken Griffey itching to go. Not always what Joe Morgan wanted. It ends up go, getting to a two-strike count. Uh, actually, it doesn't get to a two-strike count. It's a one-one count. Uh, and, you know, Griffey takes off. Joe Morgan is going to put a charge into one. But, man, like I said, this game, this game is incredible. It's got incredible moments that you, I bet you didn't even know happened because of the famous moment that we're still waiting to get to. We'll get there. I promise. I promise. It's coming soon. There's just still so, we still got a lot to get through to get there. Morgan, the kind of a guy you could do a lot of things with. Well hit right field deep. Evans is going back, back near the wall and oh, what a catch he made. What a catch by Dwight Evans. against the wall. Now his throw is off the mark by about 20 feet to the right of first base. Burleson covered the bag, the double play. Big play of the game. And now we go to the bottom of the 11th inning, still tied at six all. We've seen it all. I keep telling you, this game, man, just what a play by Dewey Evans. Uh, just, you know, just running back. Morgan crushes that one. Wouldn't have gone over the fence, but with how low the fences were, who knows? He doesn't make that catch easily. Runner in scoring position, you know, runner scores. Morgan's probably on third base given his speed, and you'd have the the middle of the order coming up with one out. I mean, just what a heck of a play by Dewey Evans, and I'm not sure what Ken Griffey was thinking, you know, where he was going, but. uh Man, it, I mean, that's just just think about the, the moments in this game that, that are going to lead us to this amazing ending. There, there's so much in this game where things could have broken another way and, you know, history would have been written different. Uh, but it just, what leads up to this is incredible. Um, Pat Darcy 
you know, it's going to send us to the bottom of the 11th and the Red Sox really, well, they still can't do anything. Rick Miller ends up pinch hitting for Drago, flies out to left. And then we got two ground outs short, pretty weak from uh, Doyle and Yastrzemski. Darcy's done a pretty good job. I mean, this Reds bullpen, apart from Eastwick, apart from Eastwick, who was the most reliable guy in the regular season, this Reds bullpen has been fantastic. They've been excellent. And, uh, you know, and they've gotten chances, you know, that the Red Sox are having to go to more pitchers and they're not as deep as the Reds when it comes to the pitching staff. Um, And so we're going to bring in our game three starter who struggled, Rick Wise. And he's going to be facing a part of the order that he struggled with. He's going to be facing Bench, Perez, and Foster. And then going to have Concepcion and Geronimo down at the back end there. Uh, you know, Rick Wise, there's probably arguments for, for, you know, him being available and all this stuff. He's got the glasses. I like his look. You know, he's got that classic late 60s, early 70s look to him. Um, you know, and he comes up, he's, he comes on the attack. I mean, that's the one thing that's, uh, that's important for him here. Uh, gets Johnny Bench to pop out behind home plate. Uh, Carlton Fisk makes a nice, nice play. Tony Perez ends up sort of just, pushing one through uh up the middle uh not 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 a bad pitch by uh by Rick Wise by any stretch of the imagination and then George Foster bloops one in the left um you know a night you know not not bad pitching at all and so up that brings up Concepcion and Geronimo the guys who went back to back and knocked Rick Wise out of the game <laughs> essentially back in game 3 and if you're thinking as a Red Sox fan, you're thinking, oh, man, this is probably it. I mean, that's that's just what it is, you know. But Rick Wise knuckles down and finds a way to get himself out of this, out of this. You know, ends up getting, giving up a fly ball to right field. Uh, nice play by Dewey Evans is able to hold uh, Perez at second. And then uh, actually falls behind Geronimo 2-1, gets back in, and here we are to send his team into the dugout, back into the dugout with a chance to win it in the 12th. Here's Rick Wise finding some stones. There aren't many players left on the Cincinnati squad to use. Doug Flynn is one. Bretton Monk. Uh, Plummer. In there, cold strike three. Right down the pipe, and Wise strikes out Geronimo. There were two hits. The Reds lead two. We go to the bottom of the 12th of a 6-6 game. Guts. Guts from Rick Wise, uh, who really, you know, had a letdown in that, uh, in game three, but is able to, you know, able to come in, focus in, and uh, and do his job, uh, work his way out of a jam. And that brings us the moment you've all been waiting for. The moment you know is coming. Well, Carlton Fisk is going to step up to the plate versus Pat Darcy. And I don't know if Fisk was hungry, if he had a hot date or something. But he was thinking what everyone in the ballpark was thinking. It's time to go home. Fair. 
1975 World Series. Carlton Fisk becomes the first player in the series to hit one over the wall into the net. Red Sox win it 7-6 in 12 innings. And Carlton Fisk had a lot of little boy in him right there, Joe. He took one step, knew it was going to be close, he knew it was gone, and it was dancing in the streets all the way around. Johnny Pesky greets him at first base. And he is dancing as he gets his second base. It came very close to hitting that foul pole. We'll see how close. There it is. Pick it up as it comes, and there it is. It did hit it, and Foster did come up with the ball. So there will be a seventh game here tomorrow night. What and a World Series, Joe Garagiola, have we seen here between these two clubs. It's fitting that we have a seventh game, you know. I'd had to go to the seventh game, Dick, because they battled and battled. And now tomorrow night, it'll be Gullet. Bill Lee, this crowd, refusing to leave. Amazing. So their ball club battled back. They've been up and down, clutch plays, clutch catches. And they are just dancing in the streets here as Carlton Fisk brings a seventh game. A lot of body English for Carl Fifth. Huh? Watch it. <laughs> How many steps does he take? One. He waits to see it. Get over. Get over. <laughs> he knew it. There it is. I tell you, one of the more dramatic home runs in World Series history. And there is Tom Yawkey to the left. Haywood Sullivan. And there are the fans, and the picture says it all. Well... You won't see many more exciting World Series than the 1975 Classic. That's just one of the most iconic moments. You think about World Series, you think about walk-offs, you think about Pudge, Carlton Fisk, waving that ball fair, jumping down the line. And that's something that's so incredible that in a lot of ballparks, you wouldn't necessarily get that angle that you do at Fenway Park because of the Green Monster, because they've got the camera, the camera's looking basically right down the line from there. You're able to get that great shot of Fisk waving it fair and jumping for joy like a little boy. Oh my God, it's so incredible. I mean, it, it's always interesting. I. It, quick little note on Carlton Fisk is he was a very, it's interesting that he was a catcher because he's a very upright person. He's got a very kind of long torso. When he would step into the box, he would do this thing of, he would take the bat behind his head with both arms and kind of do a stretch, let out a big breath. Uh, and when he would run, he, his, his arms never really seemed to drift down to it, drift down to his hips. He always kind of kept them at 45 degree angles 
running around. Uh, but you just see the joy. It's basically, he's slapping. Mean, people stormed the field back then. There was just a huge thing that happened in the 60s and 70s. Uh, he's kind of like dodging people, uh, runs in, and, you know, they're not even to get Fisk out for an interview because they're just getting mobbed. Uh, Kubek, I mean, Kubek, who we really haven't heard from in a while, he gets to talk a little bit. He's like, oh, well, uh, we're trying to get Carlton Fisk out here, but uh, there's too many people, so I'm uh, going to send it back up to you, Joe. Um, man, what a, what a game. I, th- there's the argument that this is the greatest game ever played. It's up there. It's up there. I mean, there's, uh, and especially what I what I see is like sometimes you have, you know, higher scoring games or more it's even games with more swings of back and forth. Um, but this this one's incredible. I mean, the staving off elimination. We've got. I mean, what a moment for Carlton Fisk. Uh, but one thing I, I forgot to mention, you know, when it came to Bernie Carbo's home run, you can just see the joy from this team and, and with everything, you know, Dewey Evans in the, in the eighth inning, you know, he felt, you know, he met, missed an opportunity. He missed some pitches and kind of expanded the zone and struck out against Eastwick. The first person who comes up to Carbo when he's running in the dugout is Dewey Evans, gives him a big bear hug and saying like, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for helping me out there. Bill Lee is going crazy in the dugout, you know, cause of course, Bernie Carbo's his buddy. I mean, it's just what a, it's so awesome, you know, and, and then you, with, we're going to have a game seven, the best thing in baseball, game seven, all bets are off. I mean, who the heck are the Reds going to turn to, to pitch? I mean, cause they used everybody. They used everybody. I mean, Gullitz, he's going to have to try to throw a complete game most likely. And I mean, the Red Sox, they've got to be feeling great. They've got Bill Lee and uh, they, they feel like they've got now, they've got all the momentum on their side, but. That's the thing about Game 7. Momentum matters until it doesn't. But this is, I just think about, you know, obviously I wasn't alive when this game happened. But my dad remembers it. He remembers watching it and, and just being enamored with, wow, what a, what a game. Like, and it was on a school night. It was a Tuesday night. And you had kids across the country, um, and especially in the Northeast, staying up late, probably way past their bedtime, to watch the World Series. I mean, come on. That's incredible. And then it's, we've got a Game 7. We're going to do it all again in just a matter of hours because based off of how long this game went, <laughs> ain't going to be long before we're back at it again, boys. Um, man, just what an incredible game incredible moments and it's like you know obviously like i knew about fist home run i knew about carbo's home run too but i didn't know about all the other plays that the winning run was cut down and that had cesar geronimo and george foster coming up with huge hits and you know these guys coming out of the bullpen i mean dick drago dick drago does a tremendous job three innings stones i mean just man ah I can't say enough about this. And I mean, I've already probably, if, if you're listening to this, I've, I've held you for too long. Uh, it's like that, uh, that, you know, that you, we're, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, I promise. Um, and 
man, just what a what an incredible game, what an incredible series. I mean, we, we, you know, it's it's it was one of those series that while people were watching it, they knew they were watching greatness. They were watching something historical, and they were reflecting on that. It. it was like, wow, this is incredible. This is why. We love sports. I mean, we might make too much out of sports at times, try to make some like overcasting uh, its influence, but its ability, it's, it's the catharsis, the incredible moments, the the, the stress. It's just, oh, I love it. I can't, can't get enough of it. Um, and hey, game seven is a great one too. And that's what we'll be covering in the following episode. Game seven, all bets are off. Reds versus Red Sox. Could the Reds finally come through, win that World Series in the 70s that they had been, that they had been pining for? Would the upstart Red Sox take one away? Hope you'll tune in. Catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.